Well, like I said, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. It's a familiar and much loved psalm. And after I read the scripture, I'll also be reading from the Contemporary Testimony, Article 44. But first, Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Also reading from the Contemporary Testimony, Article 44. And the connection here between this psalm and this article and the testimony is that Uh, The testimony uh, cites this psalm as one of the reasons that we should respect all life. And so they make this connection between Psalm 139 and being people of life. So this is what the testimony says. It says, Life is a gift from God's hand who created all things. Receiving this gift thankfully with reverence for the creator, we protest and resist all that harms, abuses, or diminishes the gift of life, whether by abortion, pollution, gluttony, addiction, or foolish risks. Because it is a sacred trust, we treat all life with awe and respect, especially when it is most vulnerable, whether growing in the womb, touched by disability or disease, 
or drawing a last breath. When forced to make decisions at life's raw edges, we seek wisdom in community, guided by God's word and spirit. Margaret Wise Brown's children book, The Runaway Bunny, is a classic bedtime story about a little bunny who decides to run away from his mother. And I meant to bring it with me this morning. It's right there on my desk. I can see it in my mind, but I forgot it at home. Maybe you have a copy. You can go grab it. It says, once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. Well, if you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. Maybe you know the book. The little bunny has all kinds of ideas of where he could go to run away. The river, the mountaintop, a hidden garden. Each time the mother says that she will come after him and find him, for you are my little bunny. In the end, he decides to just stay put and have a carrot. Maybe things aren't so bad with his mother after all. In this sweet little book about the mother's steadfast love for her little bunny, we hear echoes of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. It's a comforting message. Really good bedtime book material. Cuddle up with a little one on the rocking chair kind of material. The rocking chair material is only strengthened for us perhaps by the following image of God as a knitter. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. In its original context, it probably would have conjured up images of like a weaver with a big loom. But for us, it's more like a comforting image of a mom in a rocking chair, late in the evening, glasses perched on the end of her nose with knitting needles in hand and a ball of yarn beside her. Mother bunnies, knitting, rocking chairs, Psalm 139 could be a lullaby. It's soothing, calming, comforting. Life is a gift from God's hand, the contemporary testimony tells us. And so we receive this gift thankfully and with reverence. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Big hug, climb into bed, get all tucked in, and lights out. When we think about what it means to be people of life who are part of God's mission in the world, Psalm 139 gives us a foundation to start from. That no frame is hidden from God, even in the womb. And so we treat all life with respect. It's a positive message. I received some wise pastoral advice once that if I ever wanted to read a psalm with someone at the end of a pastoral visit, I'd better read through the whole thing before, just to make sure there weren't any surprises. This advice applies to Psalm 139. 
I mean, imagine the scene, sitting beside a hospital bed, offering a word of comfort and assurance to someone who was going through maybe the worst day of their lives, or even sitting beside a newly pregnant single woman who is frightened for the future, but who also recognizes that life is a sacred gift from God no matter how it comes to us. Imagine sitting at life's raw edges, as the testimony puts it, where the bedtime story, the mother knitting, the lullaby, it's a comfort and an assurance. But then verse 19 comes along. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. A professor from seminary would tell us about an acquaintance of his who would sit down for dinner and somewhat wryly pray in the style of this psalm, saying, Dear Lord, we thank you for this food, for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. Be with us as we fellowship at this table now and stay with us this evening. And by the way, slay my enemies. We might think of it as roughly the equivalent of getting to the end of the runaway bunny and seeing this little bunny on his mother's lap with a carrot in hand, telling her that he wishes she would destroy all the other little bunnies who are mean to him, who say bad things. What is happening here? And what on earth does it have to do with being people of life who treat all life with awe and respect? I mean, do we need to put a little asterisk on that phrase in the contemporary testimony? We treat all life with awe and respect, except my enemies whom God should slay. Maybe this is not the nice bedtime story we thought it was. These verses may come to us as a surprise and catch us off guard, but this kind of language is not completely unusual in the Psalms. It even has a name. Psalms that contain this language of praying against an enemy are called imprecatory or cursing psalms. Cursing actually seems like a fitting description because not only are you calling down curses on the enemies, but also taking these words on our lips feels a little bit like we're saying swear words or something. Like we look around and hope no one heard that. Are we allowed to say those words in church? Are we allowed to say that we hate people? Are we allowed to ask God to slay the wicked? I mean, doesn't that pretty directly go against Jesus' command to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us? I mean, isn't hatred itself something that diminishes the gift of life? I mean, how can we simultaneously hate and call ourselves people of life? These are the kind of tough questions about cursing psalms that help us to understand why these parts of the psalms are hardly ever read in worship or preached on for that matter. The Revised Common Lectionary prescribes this particular psalm, Psalm 139, to be read once a year. But in each instance where it's part of the lectionary, these verses are cut out. They are skipped over. 
And so if you stuck really closely to the lectionary for your devotions or for worship services, these verses would never be read. They are literally edited out, edited out, and we can understand why. In fact, there's a whole school of Christian thought that says Christians cannot and should not ever pray these words. In my opinion, that does us no favors, because as Walter Brueggemann points out, this yearning for vengeance, it's there in Scripture, whether we like it or not. It's in over 20 psalms, without apology, without embarrassment, without censorship. So we cannot explain it away or just avoid it. And so with that in mind, I want to make two observations this morning about the psalmist's words in verses 19 to 22. First, at the heart, these words are offered to God in recognition of some injustice. As the commentator Clive Lewis explains, if the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part because they took right and wrong more seriously. For if we look at their railings, we find that they are usually angry, not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong. They are hateful to God as well as the victim. And this would be the case in Psalm 139. What we see in the background is that the psalmist is aware of some rebellion against God. That there are people in the psalmist's life who are wicked in their, op in their opposition to this God of life. And it's really the end, these verses at the end, that give us insight into why this comforting prayer was crafted in the first place. It could be that there was a, a wrongful accusation against the psalmist. And so they're invoking God's intimate knowledge of them to say that you, you know everything about me, God. You know my thoughts. You know my words, my deeds. You created me. You know me better than anyone else. And so you know that I am in the right. So slay the wicked. Avenge me against these false accusations. But it's not just me. Avenge your own name too, God. Because the psalmist recognizes that God's name and God's reputation is bound up with God's people. There are hints of this kind of injustice happening in the contemporary testimony, where it says that out of reverence for the Creator, we protest and resist all that harms, abuses, and diminishes the gift of life. Underneath the hard verses of this psalm is a recognition that God's people cannot willfully skip over injustice or close their eyes to those things that diminish the gift of life. Recently, there was a book of prayers published, and the authors of the prayers were women from diverse backgrounds who bring the whole range of human experience to God through their written prayers. And one prayer in particular, the prayer of a weary black woman by Dr. Chaniqua Walker Barnes, was written in the style of a psalm of imprecation. She wrote the prayer after a white person who she trusted casually used a racial slur in a conversation. 
And that raised up feelings of rage in Dr. Walker Barnes and triggered these generational memories and traumas. So she writes that at that moment, she could have done different things with her rage. She could, she could have called out that person by name on social media. She could have made them pay. She could have ruined their reputation. But instead, she did what's modeled for us in the Psalms of imprecation. She brought her rage and her pain to God. And she gave a voice to any other black woman who knows what that rage feels like, but may, may feel like they're not allowed to bring that to God. They're not allowed to say those words to God. Well, some folks who got a hold of this book and the prayer were very unimpressed with her, calling her unchristian. And all the negative attention to this prayer was given to the kind of language that was used, the language of rage, the language of hatred, that they missed the whole point of it, that this prayer is occasioned by generations of injustices, by casual racism and white supremacy. To the contemporary testimonies list of those harms and abuses that diminish the gift of life, we can undoubtedly add racism. Imprecatory prayers like the one offered by Dr. Walker Barnes, like the one offered in Psalm 139, are occasioned by injustice, by those things that diminish the gift of life. My second observation of these verses is that the psalmist in these verses is very sure of his innocence. The psalmist is sure that he's on the right side of history, the right side of God's mission, the right side of the protest, that even God who knows the psalmist most intimately would probably agree, he thinks. And I don't want to push this point too hard, but there is part of my brain, you know, the part that has read the rest of the Old Testament, that wonders, when has this ever been true? The history of Israel shows that they have been, at best, very mediocre partners in God's mission. And surely God knows that. David, even whom this psalm is associated with, was a mixed bag of motives and obedience. He was not exactly a paradigm of someone who honors life. Which I think is why it's crucial to notice that those curses, those imprecations, are followed up closely by an invitation to God to search me and to know my heart, to test me and know my anxious thoughts, to see if there is any offensive way in me and to lead me in the way everlasting. There's an admission at the very end that yes, I may be certain I am in the right, that I am the person who is on God's side, that I am the person who honors life, but that in the end, God, I need you to be the judge of that. I need you to lead me. The curses are spoken and prayed in Psalm 139 so that God can search them, test them, see if they are offensive. And then that same God who knows them, who never leaves them, who knit them together in their mother's womb, will be the one to lead them in the way everlasting. 
This is a much better way forward than simply skipping over the hard things and pretending like those impulses for vengeance aren't there. Like there are no injustices that can move us to anger. I think, for example, we should be angry about the fact that the remains of 215 children were just found at a residential school. To be a person of life means that when in our protesting and resisting abortion, pollution, excess, gluttony, addiction, even racism, or the heresy of manifest destiny that has resulted in the murder of indigenous children in this country, we can lay our nastiest thoughts before God rather than stuffing them away so that we leave vengeance in God's hands rather than taking it up ourselves. Because just as much as the impulse for vengeance exists in Scripture, it also exists in us. Brueggemann says that the yearning for vengeance is there among us and within us and with power. It is not only there in the Psalms, but it is here in the human heart and in the human community. As John Calvin notes in his commentary on Psalms, the Psalms provide an anatomy of all parts of the soul. The Psalms know us better than we know ourselves, better than we want to be known. This vengeance-seeking, even hatred, is part of our lived reality. Even if we make every effort to hide those thoughts, to nurse our wounds in private or in places where we will not be held accountable, to nudge out that impulse for cursing. That impulse is there even though we make an effort to skip over even the hardest verses of our own prayers so that no one, not even God, is permitted to interrogate them. To be people of life means that we tell the whole truth even the truth of our anger and rage, so that God can search us, so that God can test our anxious or angry thoughts, so that God can see if there is any offensive way in us and lead us on the path of everlasting, abundant life. Ellen Davis is an Old Testament scholar who helps us to see that the Psalms like 139 that include cursing can actually be a real gift to us. And that they should not be avoided because they help to give language, to give words to our anger when we are too stunned by the enormity of our own anger to find our own words. She writes of a time when she was bitterly betrayed by a very close friend, was overcome with rage and anger toward this friend. So a teacher at the time gave her a list of these cursing psalms and told her to go into the chapel at school and when no one else was around to shout these psalms at the top of her lungs. And she says that was the most helpful advice anyone gave her. These words gave her a vent for her anger. They helped her to process her hurt before God. And eventually, God started to do something else through these psalms like 139. 
God helped her move beyond her blind rage. She writes, after a few days and nights, my loud rantings began to sound a little different to my ears. Angry as I still was, I could hear in them a faint note of self-righteousness, even pettiness. For the cursing psalms confront us with one of our most persistent idolatries, the belief that God has as little use for our enemies as we do. To put it another way, the psalms were instructing her through her pain, through her righteous anger as God searched her heart, tested her thoughts, and then led her on a path to more abundant life beyond the rage into closer communion with Jesus Christ. His death brought life for the world. That all those who were once enemies of life and enemies of God would be brought near. To be a person of life and to be committed to the mission of God in the world means that we are led by the God of life, that we are guided by God's word and the spirit, as the testimony says. We are led by God's word, which includes these cursing psalms that instruct us that in order to open ourselves to the God who searches and knows us, that we can speak honestly before God about the rage that we feel when injustices are done, and even more when they are done to the most vulnerable among us. Then God takes those honest prayers, God even takes our curses, searches them, tests them, and then leads us in the way everlasting the way of abundant, eternal life. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God of life, thank you for this gift of your word. We pray now for the grace to receive what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you. Help us to protest and resist all that harms and diminishes life. Help us to treat all life with respect. And God, when our anger at injustice threatens to overwhelm us, help us to lay it at your feet so that you can search us, test us, and lead us in the way everlasting. Through Christ who gave his life that we might have life. Amen.